0: G'day I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day dad how you going today good to be chatting on the podcast again as always. Good to join you again Rowan. Now I'm looking forward to today's episode we've called it facing a phobia so what are we going to be talking a little bit about today? Okay, so phobias are intense fears that can interfere with people's
1: life in some way, and about 10% of people at any one time are going to have, a, say, a fear of heights or snakes or being in enclosed spaces, and so this is one of the more specific type of anxiety disorders that can be quite disruptive to people, even more disruptive than might seem on the surface.
0: Well, the thing that really strikes me about phobias is that It's not just a perceived fear that someone has. For example, if you've got someone who's phobic, the whole world almost closes in on them at that time when they're feeling that anxiety. So what is the difference between a phobia and just a more general anxiety about something or a fear? Uh, Yes, I think that what you're getting at there is if people are truly phobic and they're in a
1: situation where they have to face their fear, such as a snake being nearby, it can truly feel catastrophic, not just intensely uncomfortable, but more intense than that. So by definition, a phobia is a very intense fear and a very persistent fear. So in a whole range of situations where people are, say, looking down from heights or being in enclosed spaces or having to be a long way from home, it's in each of these situations, it'll tend to trigger the fear. But the person recognises it's excessive, They recognise that their fear of heights or being in a lift or having an injection is is more than it might otherwise need to be. And so the person will nearly always experience... The very intense distress, for example, any time that they might be facing the prospect of an injection or, again, in enclosed spaces or whatever. And it tends to happen in any situation where people might be confronted by that circumstance, such as confronting a spider or a snake or, or heights. Uh, but the other aspect of a phobia is by definition, it has to affect your life in some significant way, such as the level of distress that you feel is so great about it, it affects your life, or it restricts your capacity to work. For example, if people find it hard to be a long way from home and that stops them from taking a job, which involves, for example, driving a fair distance from home, then that by definition would impact on their life in some way negatively. So that's the other aspect of a phobia. It affects your life negatively. If you didn't have to confront the feared situation so it had no impact on your life, we wouldn't define it as a phobia.
0: Well, that's interesting to me because I remember uh, when the Essendon drug scandal came out, there was a player, David Zaharakis, who actually missed out on being suspended because he had a needle phobia. So they were obviously never able to prove that they gave him injections because he said, well, I'm not having injections because I, I don't like needles sort of thing. So in that situation, obviously it's maybe got in the way of his work. Would it still be considered a phobia because it's almost worked out kind of well for him in the end. That's a really interesting example and I think we still would call it a phobia
1: because there'd probably be a range of other situations where an injection might be very helpful and I suspect that he might have otherwise resisted that but really it would only be in circumstances where someone maybe had to face that situation and say if the club had said well you can't continue at this club unless you join our unfortunate drug enhancement program. But if they'd said that and that it interfered with his employment, that would have also, I think, met the definition. But what a remarkable example. There's an example where it had a significant positive effect on his career.
0: And I think it shows as well just the degree to which you can have a phobia and kind of go about your life. And it's not as if people who have phobias are so damaged that they're going about their business and it could confront them out of nowhere at any time. He's someone who's obviously prominent and successful and has had a good career, arguably a better career than he would have had if he didn't have that phobia. But I suppose one thing I wonder is, does everyone respond to their phobia the same? So obviously you can have... A whole range of more specific phobias as you've mentioned but is it the case that when people are confronted by their phobia it's almost like we have the same reaction to a range of different cues if that makes sense?
1: When it boils down to it there are some very similar core dimensions of what people experience with a phobia because basically what's happening is it's triggering anxiety in terms of a sense of threat or danger so our survival mechanisms kick in And we've talked before about a fight, flight or freeze response. And in this case, with a phobia, people tend to feel like fleeing or avoiding the situation, escaping it as quickly as they can or feeling frozen in the situation. That's our basic biological survival mechanisms kicking in, but kicking into overdrive excessively when the objective danger is not so great. But the other thing I'd say is the three main dimensions of those anxiety reactions are the somatic or the physical reactions. So people are going to have panic-type feelings. For example, heart beating fast, shortness of breath, tense muscles. They're going to have some cognitive reactions related to anxiety, basically in terms of catastrophic thoughts. This is terrible, I'm in danger, I've got to get out of here. Those kind of catastrophic thoughts. And people will tend to have the behavioural tendency of looking to escape or avoid the situation. So there's the somatic, the cognitive and the behavioural and by recognising those common elements to phobias that helps guide us in treatment because
0: the treatments help address each of those three areas. And so what's the link between a phobia and anxiety? Because like one thing that you sort of hear quite common is people for example having social anxiety and agoraphobia seems to be one of the more common phobias. So Are these one in the same? Are they they sort of the same thing? Is a phobia just a more intense version of an anxiety or is there something slightly different once you pass the threshold of something being phobic?
1: Okay well look the first thing is by definition a phobia does relate to anxiety because a phobia is a particular type of anxiety disorder. And there are three main areas of phobias. You mentioned agoraphobia, which tends to be a fear of being away from home. We often think of that, but it's particularly a fear of having a panic attack in a difficult situation where it's hard to escape. For example, having a panic attack in a supermarket or having a panic attack a long way from a hospital and not being able to get help. It's often related to a fear of having a panic attack. Social anxiety disorder, also known as social phobia, and that's a particular phobia where people are fearful of coming under other people's scrutiny in a way that might be embarrassing or humiliating. So, you know, they'd certainly not get up on a stage or give a speech in front of others without intense anxiety. But it might come up in other ways too. For example, having difficulty eating in front of other people or being fearful of signing their name in front of other people, lest other people notice that they're handshaking a little bit and the other people might think that they're a bit odd or weird because they're kind of anxiously having their handshake. So there are a couple of examples of phobias, but what we're particularly talking about today is what we might call specific phobias, or what used to be called simple phobias, meaning it's quite a specific situation or circumstance in which people might feel a lot of distress. It could be a fear of dogs or spiders or heights or enclosed spaces. And the thing with specific phobias is they will always involve a heightened, intense, persistent, excessive anxiety in a particular situation. And by defining the situation, it helps you get an idea of the range of circumstances that people might experience that fear.
0: One of the things that I find interesting that you've mentioned so far is, so phobias seem to relate to a sense of fear or threat, but it can be a threat of almost a range of things in terms of it can be a threat of being hurt, which can kind of manifest itself in a range of ways. It can be a threat of maybe not having control of maybe seeing or doing something. So are there almost, say, different types of phobias? Like, do we, say, group phobias between, say, like a fear of physical pain and a fear of perception in a certain way? Are there there different types in that manner? Okay, there are a number of main types of phobias that we would tend to group together, like fears of particular
1: animals, often spiders, snakes, mice would be examples that sometimes interfere with people's, for example, capacity to go on a bushwalk from a fear of snakes. Things to do with the natural environment. For example, people might have a fear of thunderstorms. Then there are specific situational phobias such as fear of flying or otherwise fear of enclosed spaces such as a lift or being in a cave. And then blood injection and injury phobias where people might have a particularly strong reaction, for example, to the sight of blood. Then there are some other specific types of phobias such as a fear of clowns or of having a reaction such as vomiting in public where people might avoid situations where that risk might come up. And so, yeah, they're the broad kind of range of phobias we see.
0: Well, what really strikes me there is that many of those phobias that you've described seems to be a more intense version of anxiety or a fear that kind of everyone has, you know? like I don't know too many people who are happy to go up to the top of a tall building and look over the edge, for example. So why do you think there's so much stigma around phobias?
1: Well, I'll first mention, I think that's a really good point about there being some level of objective danger which kicks into these survival kind of mechanisms that makes it a little bit more understandable how someone can develop a phobia when there can be some objective risk in flying or spiders or snakes or whatever. You know, people have actually died from encounters with these situations. If we had no fear of injury at all, for example, then that might not help our survival. So I think that's one thing that actually helps people with phobia accept their reactions a little bit more to recognise there is this little kernel of truth, if you like, in the phobia but it's become markedly exaggerated and excessive as the person knows so it has this unwanted effect. But yeah, that aspect of the stigma, I think it might come up in terms of maybe being seen to show signs of anxiety, being equated with a form of weakness in some way. Fortunately, I think we're a little bit more enlightened these days and we understand that it's natural after loss or trauma or very challenging circumstances to experience and show some anxiety. But I think often the person experiences the fear of stigma more than it would objectively be there. Like, I can think of people who thought it would be the worst thing in the world if people saw their hand shake when they're trying to sign some document or whatever, so they just really go to any length to not be in that situation, thinking they'd come across as really pathetic or really weak or really weird to the other person when I think often the consequence would not be as severe as it would seem. And is it something where people are usually
0: aware of the source of their phobia?
1: Uh, not always, for example, say, not getting enough air. I know someone who is very fearful of being on a plane, for example. But they didn't know exactly why they were so fearful of being on a plane and then pressing them further about how they felt, for example, about heights or enclosed spaces, it was clear that they were more concerned about enclosed spaces than, for example, a plane crashing or heights in general. So it turned out that this person underneath it all had a fear of not getting enough air and they thought of the plane as being in closed space. And it turned out that when they were a young child that had a near-drowning incident and they also had asthma, so they had reasons in the past for not feeling that they'd get enough air and in that situation they weren't so aware. But once we figured out the more precise nature of their fear, that really helped because then they realised that if they sat on a plane and they trained the air vent straight on their face and focused on the fact that they were getting this refreshing air, that actually helped the person take a flight soon after quite successfully. So that's an example of picking up the specific basis of a phobia might help. But there was another example where, say, I was very confused what the source of the phobia was, and the person did know it themselves. And this was a strange situation where a person tended to run outside whenever the wind picked up. So even if the wind went from, say, five knots to ten knots they'd rush outside even if there was an impending thunderstorm and actually if the wind got much worse they'd especially try and be outside and run outside and you'd think well there's more danger outside in a thunderstorm what's this about and the person described that some years earlier there had been a terrible storm and they were in their lounge room and heard this terrible crash they went to their bedroom and saw the window had been smashed in by an outside awning It had been smashed through the window, spraying their bedroom with glass. And this person thought, if I was standing there near the window, I could have been killed. So they got the idea in the back of their mind, oh, it's safer being outside than inside. So even if the wind picked up a little bit, they tend to rush outside. So that was a situation where the person was quite aware of where it came from, but they still had this phobic reaction.
0: So is it the case then, and look, this might be a little bit naive in some ways, but There's almost a view of a phobia where it's the result of someone having a traumatic event and to simplify it down, essentially not wanting to be in that traumatic situation again. So that's a situation that they become quite fearful of and phobic of and that's where the phobia develops from. But is it the case that you need to go through a traumatic event to develop a phobia out of? Not necessarily, and we
1: could think of that situation where the awning smashed through the window as like a traumatic event, so to speak, or what could have been a traumatic event, but people tend to learn phobias from some kind of negative experience themselves, for example, that near drowning leading to a fear of not getting enough air, or people tend to pick it up from a parent for example, uh, it could be a fear of snakes or, or oh, who knows, spiders maybe. <laughs> but, um, but as far as that goes, more commonly there'll be some kind of events that have contributed to it But it might not be uh, an obviously traumatic event at the time. And it's more like the person can develop sometimes, sometimes it can seem the person develops the idea of something being very dangerous to them and it can be hard to really pinpoint what that might be. And certainly in psychodynamic therapy, sometimes it might be thought that the phobia is about something which represents a symbolic threat in
0: some ways. And sometimes that's very hard to get at what the source of that might be. And so, then, how much is it the case that you need to understand that source of someone's phobia? Is it that you can almost build up a tool belt kind of in competition with the phobia, if you know what I mean? So, you, you arm someone with the resources to be able to tackle it without necessarily addressing the problem, or is it the case that addressing the problem and hitting it at the source is really the best case forward in all circumstances?
1: Okay. well, look, there are some mechanisms or strategies we'll talk about a little bit later that actually are the most important things for helping deal with a phobia, whatever leads to it or whatever the source of it might be. But it does help to understand the core of a phobia. And I'll give one example. Just say agoraphobia, where people might have a fear of being, say, away from home. And sometimes we ask people, do you have more of a fear in a crowded street or an empty street? Now if people have a fear of being in a crowded street then probably they're afraid of having a panic attack but in a way that will make them look stupid or weird. So they're fearful of other people around and and looking stupid by having a panic attack in front of other people whereas if people prefer a crowded street and they're fearful of an empty street Similarly, they're likely afraid of having a panic attack, but they might construe their panic attack as being physically dangerous. They might think they're about to have a heart attack because their heart's beating fast. So there it's more a fear of physical danger, and that person might find it very difficult to drive at any great distance from a hospital. And when they go to a new town, they might try and figure out quickly where the hospital is because they have a fear of some physical danger from a panic attack. So when we can understand that, then we can get more at the kind of nature of someone's thinking behind the fear, but also can help us tailor the ways that they face it to get the most benefit.
0: And so how is it that a phobia becomes developed? Because, look, I can think of sort of things back in my own life, for example, that we're pretty scary at times, and, but it's not necessarily that I'm phobic of those things. So why is it that there's that discernment between a one-off event that causes fear and something that becomes phobic?
1: Okay, well, look, there's a mechanism called conditioning, which we learned about for phobias from a long-ago experiment about this little boy, Albert, and the white rat. And this shows how a phobia can develop. What happened is this little boy, Albert was exposed to a white rat, but every time he came in contact with the rat, then the experimenters made a sudden very loud noise, which was very aversive and unsettling. Now, each time the rat came near, this same loud noise. Now, Albert developed a phobia, an exaggerated persistent fear of the rat. We might consider that an unethical experiment these days but it did show how a pairing of one situation with another could lead to distress. So it is possible that someone could be in a particular situation like, for example, if they were in a cave and had a panic attack then they might associate the panic attack with enclosed spaces and especially caves, for example. It's a kind of conditioning. But also it could be learning or exaggerated learning from some past negative experience or near-traumatic experience like some that we mentioned earlier. And so there are a range of ways where people can develop phobias, including, as we said, learning from a parent. But there can be that conditioning aspect that happens and we might not know in someone's history how their reaction was triggered by a particular situation that might have been paired with them feeling anxious for another
0: reason. There's a great episode of uh, the American version of The Office where one of the characters, basically, well, every time he starts up his computer and you hear the little kind of da-ding, he offers the fellow across the desk a mint, and so, so I said, ding do you want a mint, Dwight, or whatever? And uh, so eventually he gets to the stage where he opens up his computer and the fella just puts out his hand. So he goes, uh, what are you doing, mate? But uh, that's an example of, of that conditioning, I think, which is, uh, yeah, it's quite funny in that episode. But I suppose one thing that I'm interested in here is there seems to be a real balance between managing a phobia in terms of not necessarily putting yourself in situations where you have to confront it, And then being avoidant, because like, if we go back to that David Zaharakis example where he didn't have the injections and he was able to play a lot more footy because of that, but that could potentially be an example of avoidance in some ways because he was able to go on without having to engage in the fear at that time. Remember when we spoke about avoidance on the podcast, we spoke about some of the issues that can come from that. So is it the case with phobias that you don't want to avoid it because then that's sort of not hitting the source? Or is it the case that you do want to, in certain situations, avoid the really intense fear?
1: Well, I suppose it depends on how important the activity is. Like, say if someone has a fear of driving away from home, but there are many circumstances socially or otherwise in their work that they might need to drive at some distance. Or it might be driving in a particular situation, such as driving over a bridge where a person might be concerned about becoming stuck on that bridge or otherwise sometimes they might have a concern about the bridge falling down. There could be different reasons behind that fear. But say, the more, I suppose, important the situation in their life, such as driving or being able to walk some distance from one's home then the more important it is for the person to be able to reduce their phobic anxiety so they have more freedom, so they can face these situations more readily. And the problem with avoidance is avoidance will tend to reinforce the fear. Because when people face a fearful situation, such as starting to drive some distance from home, if the person feels some level of fear and then immediately turns around and drives back home and feels that immediate relief from escaping the situation of driving further afield, then that will tend to reinforce or strengthen the fear. So, for example, if people avoid bushwalks because of fear of snakes then again, if someone starts to walk towards a setting where they think, oh, I'm starting to enter a bush here, there might be snakes here, and then turns around quickly and flees the situation, it'll tend to reinforce the fear. So that's the problem with avoidance. It tends to strengthen or reinforce a fear, making it more intense and more persistent. The way of dealing with phobias when people want to overcome them or greatly reduce them is actually to face the fear, but in particular ways.
0: One thing that strikes me about phobias and and it's interesting that importance idea as well because, for example, you may have a phobia to, for example, a spider but you're going to come in contact with a spider a lot less than, for example, someone with a driving phobia will come in contact with the opportunity to drive. So in that sense, potentially some of the most common phobias aren't necessarily the ones that people say seek therapy for, I imagine. So in a therapy setting... What are some of the phobias that people seek help for? I think the most common one would
1: be agoraphobia, so the fear of having a panic attack. It might be a fear of having a panic attack in a supermarket or being caught in a queue and then not being able to escape. So it's in situations where escape is difficult. It might be even driving on the Melbourne Road between Melbourne and Geelong, for example, a a one-hour drive and people being fearful of becoming stuck halfway there on a highway, whereas they might be able to drive more readily nearer their home. So certainly agoraphobia flying phobias would be another one that comes up a little bit more often and situations where people are fearful of not getting enough air and that might be going in an elevator it's not that these are necessarily very common in terms of particular phobias i would see someone only every few years for a difficulty like that but with agoraphobia that might affect about say 5% of clients coming through our practice
0: just to pick up on one of the things that you mentioned there so you mentioned a fear of planes for example well a fear of planes is something that i find quite interesting because If someone has a fear of flying, it's not as if you can make the plane necessarily any safer than it was going to be. So how do you, I suppose, reframe someone's view of flying in itself without being able to change the nature of flying, if that makes sense?
1: Okay, Well, look, I suppose part of it is there will be an objective risk of flying, but it's very small. And so first of all, we might try and put that into some kind of context because that can help to be a bit more realistic about it. Most people are surprised to hear that fewer than 50% of plane crashes end in a fatality. Some people would assume that every single plane crash, everybody on board would die. That's actually not the case. And actually, someone calculated that if we looked at the likelihood of dying in a plane crash, you'd actually have to fly every minute of your life from birth, your entire time, until you were 72 years old, before, by the law of probability, you might anticipate having a plane crash. So when people hear that kind of information, it just helps people recognise a little bit more objectively, maybe some of the extent of the exaggeration of their fear, so to speak. And for many phobias, there are ways of helping put that in a certain kind of perspective. But in particular, I think what helps is just recognising that whatever the phobia is, it's an understandable fight-flight-freeze reaction Which is being triggered, sometimes in ways that we don't know why that particular reaction was triggered, but it is triggered by a particular situation. And really, what people are dealing with is the uncomfortable distress and the feelings and the catastrophic thinking itself. It's almost like our internal reactions, our own somatic feelings and our own thoughts. That's really the challenge that we're facing. And one thing is for people to get the idea that that might be very uncomfortable, those situations, but typically they're not so dangerous. So we might have mentioned some facts about the objective danger to put it in perspective, but really the challenge for people is to face their very uncomfortable thoughts and feelings to go through the experience of facing their phobia in ways to be able to bring the fear down.
0: So in that case then, is it suggested that you'd almost try and sort of rationalise the danger of the full situation rather than sort of saying to someone, I understand that, you know, planes do sometimes come out of the air sort of thing. Like I remember back to the OCD episode, one of the things that came out of that was people with OCD recognise at times that their experience isn't the most rational. So Is it similar with phobias where we don't necessarily want to trivialise someone's experience to sort of say, "Well, well, why are you scared? Planes aren't actually that dangerous.
1: Yeah, look, I think the main thing is to acknowledge that the fear is very real for the person and it will relate to influences like conditioning, past experiences and many of us, if we had different experiences ourselves, might have been much more likely to develop a phobia. So I think it's important not to trivialise it in that way, but by the same token, it does make a difference to whilst acknowledging that the reaction is there it does make a difference to help bring in some corrective information, if you like. So say another example is people having a fear of having an injection because their fear of the level of pain it might influence, for example, and just telling people that actually we don't have many pain cells, for example, in our upper arm. So if you get an injection, there's actually a one in three chance that the needle will not in contact with one of those pain cells there's about one in three chance that you'll be able to escape the pain altogether so that's a kind of situation that that corrective information can make a little bit of difference to people but look ultimately i think like you're suggesting we acknowledge that the fear is real and it is intense and it is partly how we're wired at the time it's partly in our programming if you like and and the way it triggers that fight flight response But ultimately, it is about accepting that there is that level of distress and fear that the person feels. It would be understandable if we had the full context. We might not always have a full understanding of it, but we fairly soon get onto the mechanisms of helping reduce the level of fear, even if we fully understand or not what's led to it.
0: So in that case then, are phobias less of a problem than other clinical problems, for example, because you can almost live your life in relative normality if you are avoiding those situations?
1: Yes, in many ways, I think that phobias are in a sense more contained like especially particular situational phobias or a fear of certain types of animals, often there'll be situations where we can avoid that, if you like. And that was some of the earlier psychological theories about why people developed a phobia. There might be this notion that people are actually more fearful of some other broader symbolic existential or relationship conflict or something like that and in some way the phobia symbolizes that conflict and the person simplifies their life by thinking if I just avoid this object or this situation I'll be okay rather than dealing with a broader underlying fear I think many people would think that sometimes the development of a fear can be more behavioral than that but there again maybe some fears and phobias do develop in that symbolic kind of fashion
0: And so how do you treat a phobia? Because we spoke a little bit earlier about almost like the mind, the body and the behavioral elements of a phobia. Is it the case that you almost need an approach to treat each of those things in the sense of you need something to be able to calm yourself down, you need a a mental infrastructure to be able to deal with it, or is treatment a little bit more broad than that? Well actually that gets at a lot of it, just what you
1: said there, because when it boils down to it, the principles for treating a phobia are fairly straightforward, but it's difficult to do because of the intensity of the distress involved. But basically the main therapy that we use relates to a form of exposure. By exposure we mean, like it sounds, facing the situation, facing the phobic situation. And the key is to find ways that people can face the feared situation again and again and again, so people's fear comes down to a level that's manageable. It's not just about facing the situation, such as being quite some distance from home or driving over a bridge or being in contact with a spider. It's not just being in the situation, but experiencing your anxiety coming down to a manageable level, preferably no more than 50% of where it started and hopefully less. So the therapies that we engage in involve helping the person face the feared situation again and again and again, and staying in that situation until they experience their fear coming down. But like you said, it's going to make a difference if people are forearmed in some ways. So just say for the somatic sensations that are part of the phobia, we teach people relaxation techniques and breathing techniques. So before they get in the situation or expose themselves to it, they have ways of calming their body or at least taking the edge off their distress in terms of people's thoughts dealing with the catastrophic thoughts that will come up in that situation we teach people coping self-talk so the person comes up with some self-statements or phrases along the lines of i feel uncomfortable but i can handle that i have ways of dealing with this just breathe i'll be okay just get through it allow time to pass Something like that, if people have especially a mantra or a phrase that suits them, even repeating, I'll be okay, breathing slowly, I'll be okay. I feel uncomfortable, it's not dangerous, I'll be okay. Something like that, so that helps settle someone's mind. In terms of the behavioural side, that's all about helping people face the fear in a manageable way. So that's all about breaking it up into steps not being too overwhelmed so the person's not forced into a situation where they're going to be so distressed that they just feel that they can't manage and they'll just have to flee, nor people being in a situation that's such a small challenge that it doesn't really mean anything to them. The art of exposure therapy and the art of people facing a phobia is to be able to titrate their exposure, face situations in a way that they can manage, tackling what they can but not overdoing it, still feeling some partial control, including using those strategies. And then when people have the experience again and again and again, hey, I've got through this. That was really uncomfortable, but I had ways of dealing with this. Hey, I'm in the situation, but my anxiety's come down. My body's not reacting the same way. I can breathe okay. I might still feel a bit uncomfortable, but I'm okay. As people have that experience, it helps undo that perception of threat and danger. And again, it gives people the confidence to go on further. So it's all about the art of planning that exposure so it becomes a relative success experience. The person feels they can cope with the situation.
0: It's interesting you use that term, the art of exposure, because uh, a story that comes to mind there is, I remember not long after I got to university and just uh, up on my floor, and I remember the call came down for some girls downstairs to help them with a spider, and I'm so, I'll put my hand up, I'm someone who absolutely hates spiders. And I don't know if it's necessarily ever been at a level of, say, arachnophobia, for example, but like, I just cannot stand them. And... So basically went downstairs to help with the spider and got a broom and basically in the process of trying to get rid of the spider, it became very apparent <laughs> that I did not like spiders at all. And so over the course of university, thank you very much to my friends for this one, but they would sort of take every opportunity they could to, you know, whether it be tag me in a Facebook video where a spider jumps out at you at the last second or just have a little bit of fun with it. But at the same time, now I'm in a situation where... I'm probably not as scared of spiders as I used to be because there's been all these situations where I've been confronted with that situation. So I don't know if it's necessarily exposure therapy in that situation, but uh, yeah, I suppose I've got my friends to thank for uh, certainly exposing me to a few more situations than I would have.
1: Yeah, I suppose that your kind friends could
0: say that they worked out a very artful exposure program for you. (laughs) Yeah. And so one thing I wonder about there is in therapy... Is it almost like you have to wait for someone to get to a threshold before you think that they're ready in terms of are there certain things that they have to display for you to be able to think that they're in a position to be able to go through the intensity of exposure therapy? Well, one of the main things in a
1: therapy setting is it might be actually the reason for someone referring themselves. If it comes up, say, during conversation about something else, where, for example, many people with an anxiety disorder will also have a phobia. It doesn't necessarily go the other way. Many people with a phobia will not have a different type of anxiety disorder, for example, generalised anxiety disorder around worry, but it often goes the other way. So just say if someone's seeing us for something else and the notion of a phobia comes up, then it'll be more looking at the person's motivation for change in terms of how much difference is it making to their life? Like how restrictive is it? And how much distress do they experience in terms of having that phobia? And I suppose that reflects the person's readiness. And we basically gauge that by asking the person and talking around that there'll be some phobias where the person isn't going to face it so much that they don't need to address it. But there are other situations where the person is very motivated to deal with it. It might be because they do want to drive or travel further afield or go on bushwalks or fly in a plane somewhere. But sometimes it's also because the person wants to have that extra confidence from having dealt with this more vulnerable situation. The person might want to show themselves that they can tackle that anxiety and come through it, recognising that that might more broadly bolster their confidence in their coping skills more generally.
0: And so with exposure, is it best to expose yourself to something that's going to be incredibly intense and put you right in that state of vulnerability? Or is it, for example, best to start with, say, like a photo of a spider as opposed to the real thing?
1: Uh, Again, that's a really good question for each client or each person looking at because it's going to differ according to the person. But the general principle would be if we aim too high and push ourselves into situations where we feel out of control, that's not going to help so much because people are more likely to have some kind of negative experience which might reinforce the phobia and make it worse. So we want it to be something that people can relatively handle. By the same token, we don't want it to be so trivial that the person's not really making much progress. Like if they had agoraphobia and they only walked out to their letterbox each day and didn't at least try and walk two houses down or then to the end of the street. If people weren't pushing themselves further, they wouldn't make the progress. So how we usually work that out with people is we get people to rate the level of fear they're likely to experience in different situations. For example, how fearful might they be walking out to the letterbox? That might be a level of four out of ten. What about walking two houses down the street? It might be a six out of ten. What about walking to the end of the street? They might find that's about ten out of ten, so anything further afield the same. Well, what we often look to do is we start usually with people tackling things at the lower level of what we call their fear hierarchy – or their exposure hierarchy, where it's only a, say, two, three, four, level out of ten distress. And that way people can have some kind of success experience and get the idea that when you stay in a situation, your anxiety will tend to go up, level off, and come down. And preferably come down to no more than half of what it was. But often what we do with exposure situations is we're often aiming to face situations which are a level of maybe 7 or 8 out of 10, fear. So the person's not so massively overwhelmed. They can feel some level of control. We're approaching the fear step by step, so to speak, not taking on the most difficult situations at first. And then people are likely to be able to get through it, especially, say, with a therapist's help using different strategies, some level of distraction, different encouragement, reminding the person they have some partial control. There are different things we do as a therapist to encourage the person and help them manage with that. But the key is the person can stay there and experience their anxiety coming down. So if people do go into situations where it's maybe a 7 or 8 out of 10, they stay in that situation. It might be half an hour or an hour. Notice whether anxiety's come down to no more than a 2 or 3. Sometimes it might get down to a 0 or a 1. That might even take one hour, an hour and a half in some fearful situations such as looking down from a bridge, for example. But the idea is looking for it to be a success experience each time where possible, but not expecting that to happen every time. People are going to have some lapses or little setbacks and all the rest of it. But generally what we do is we progressively move through from less challenging situations to more challenging situations. If people really want to speed it up, then we might aim for the higher levels of the hierarchy. Like someone might find it is a level of 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 to look down from a bridge maybe to a river below, and it mightn't even be that far, but for that person it's a 9 or 10 out of 10. And depending on the person, we might decide to actually face that situation maybe over an hour and a half So they have the experience of being there, staying there till their anxiety comes down. That might also be like someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, the core of which is a kind of phobic anxiety as well. The person might have a fear of germ contamination and maybe stand in a dirty washing clothes basket for an hour and a half, as long as it takes for their anxiety to come down to no more than half that initial level. But basically, we're looking for it to be a challenge that's meaningful. If you want to speed it up, you go for some of the more challenging situations. But generally, we work on a step-by-step process where the person has quite some choice in how they approach that, knowing that the more challenging you go, the quicker progress you might make. But by the same token, you don't want to bite off more than you can chew and be at risk
0: of reinforcing the phobia. And are there times when exposure doesn't work? Because I can imagine if someone has a fear and you put them in that situation, it's not necessarily a foolproof strategy that that's going to lead to growth, especially if, for example, someone's had a traumatic event in their childhood that they haven't experienced for a long time. So can there be negative experiences of putting someone in that situation as well? Yes,
1: there can be, and that's where it's being planful about the exposure, which is often the graded exposure. Because if people are in a situation where they feel pushed to do something that they don't really want to do, they're pushed too hard or they feel they don't really have control over the situation, they feel overwhelmed, and in the end they feel that they had to escape or flee, that will tend to make the fear worse. It'll tend to reinforce it because the thing is, as soon as someone flees, their anxiety will immediately come down. And that will reinforce or strengthen what happened just before it, which was the impulse to flee in the fleeing. So if we push someone into a situation or someone pushes themselves into a situation which they found so overwhelming they felt they had to flee, that's the problem. That'll reinforce the fear. So that's one area where it's important. If someone is going to leave the situation, they know they can make a strategic retreat example with agoraphobia they're fearful of being left with a full shopping basket in a supermarket and having to flee leaving the full shopping basket would encourage the person to just go out to the car park for example and then come back in afterwards when they've regrouped to some extent rather than outright fleeing because if someone races out they leave the full shopping cart for example full of groceries they've fleed home that'll tend to make it worse And the other situation when it tends not to work so well is if the person dissociates. And I can remember a young fellow with both agoraphobia and social phobia. And so what our plan was, we were going to go to a nearby youth organisation where they had pool tables, so he's going to meet other people and have a game of pool. And we did this for about an hour and a half. I went with him for that session. He met some other people. He played pool. We came back. I asked him his anxiety ratings and all the rest of it, and they didn't really change even though objectively he'd managed with what we'd done. However, throughout, he was actually dissociating, meaning he was there but not there. He was kind of tuned out. Is kind of depersonalised, if you like. I wouldn't have been surprised if while we were there, he was maybe even standing outside his body, looking on as though he was another person. I didn't know how to assess for depersonalization or dissociation then. That was a long time ago. But when I learned that people don't necessarily benefit so much from exposure if they dissociate at the time, that popped into my mind, that example. So it's important that people, in a sense, are mindfully aware when they're there of some of the reactions that they're having accepting some of the feelings in their body thoughts going through their mind sure an urge to leave or to flee to allow for those experiences being there being mindfully aware of those feeling those feelings or accepting those feelings within one's own skin without dissociating and then feeling your anxiety come down that will work If you can get your anxiety down to no more than half of what it was at its peak in that situation, you will be undoing some of the phobia on every occasion where that happens.
0: Well, it is a bit of a theme that's come up on the podcast before in terms of that idea of kind of facing things in your own skin or in your own shoes. And that's where sort of facing phobias today, I think works quite well as an episode title. But I suppose one thing that kind of strikes me about what you've said there is that, For example, having a fear of flying on a plane, it's not as if you necessarily need to go on a plane and actually go through that situation to experience it. You can almost have, as you say, that kind of graded exposure where you could, I don't know, if you go into a sort of flight simulator, that would be, for example, one thing where you're not necessarily exposed to the same level of threat. So, like for me, it's even just recognising that there are ways of almost dipping the toe in before jumping in is something that I think would be super beneficial. Now, it's interesting you mention that because that will
1: lead on to other technologies like, say, virtual reality. That actually is used these days for a fear of flying. And the thing is, any situation which evokes those reactions we talked about, anything that brings up the somatic reaction, the catastrophic thoughts, the feeling of, oh, I want to get away from this situation, that actually can even be the person closing their eyes and imagining getting on a plane as well. So these other situations like virtual reality, someone actually having the experience of seeing a plane in front of them and walking up the steps and getting on it, like seeing that happen, at least in a simulation, can still evoke the feelings just as if we close our eyes and in a detailed way, maybe in a therapy session that helps do this or in a hypnosis session, if people actually go through the experience in imagery, it can evoke Those very fight-and-flight reactions we talked about earlier. And that's the thing for the person to practice facing. It's not the situation itself. It's the kind of phobic reactions we might have in that situation. And as the person gets more confident of managing those phobic kind of reactions, then they can separate out how they're experiencing things within their body and mind from the situation itself. And when people can say unhook that, meaning, hey, here I am in the situation, there's a spider, it might be a daddy long legs or whatever, but it's on my hand and I'm not freaking out here where I used to kind of thing. The person can be starting to separate the idea of spiders being dangerous and separate out their internal reactions from the objective situation. So as people get more confident of managing their own reactions regardless of the situation they're in or that they imagine themselves
0: of being in, that can help reduce the phobia. Well, that imagination idea is something that I find fascinating because like I know in sport, for example, if you've got an aerial skier, let's just say, if they imagine themselves doing their routine and sort of flipping through the air, it's my understanding that that can actually create synapses in their brain which kind of fortify the skill in terms of even just visualising yourself in that situation can actually improve your ability to do it. So it seems that it's the case with phobias, that it's the same. But then what I wonder there is, is it best to keep telling yourself that something isn't a phobia or is it best to keep putting yourself in that situation in order to kind of desensitise yourself to it through your imagination Or is that something that could then almost like build up the experience so that when you are in the real life situation, you start to feel maybe like a more intense somatic reaction? Can that be a little bit more overwhelming potentially because you've built it up so much?
1: Okay, look, I think the general idea is our starting point is accepting our reactions as they are. So rather than telling ourselves it should be different from what it is or trying to tell ourselves that we don't have that phobia or don't need to have that phobia, I think the general idea at the start, if I get what you're getting at, is to allow for the vulnerability in the first place of letting there be that anxiety and that difficulty there, but recognising that we have some ways and developing these coping skills, including planfully facing phobias step by step having that kind of strategy and the coping skills of breathing techniques coping self-talk relaxation techniques i think starting with the point that this is how it is recognizing and accepting the reactions initially as they are but recognizing i have ways of helping myself deal with this and i will experiment i will test that out so in a sense when we're looking at facing phobias it's a series of experiments we don't expect there to be a particular result in any particular situation even though of course we hope that we will get to that level of no more than 50% the original level of anxiety but the main thing is to develop confidence that we've got the strategies and the ways that can chip away at the difficulty or make progress in some ways or help bolster our coping skills or more frequently have the experience of helping our anxiety settle so it's as we develop that confidence or what we call our self-efficacy And that's one of the ways we gauge progress. What we call subjective units of distress or our SUDS level, we rate it 0 to 10. How distressed do I think I would be in this situation? And we notice how our SUDS level, for example, being in an elevator for one minute, it might come down from an 8 to a 4, for example. The other thing we look at is self-efficacy. Even if I feel really uncomfortable or distressed, how confident am I that I can stay in a closed lift for one minute? It might start off, it's only 5%, but after a while it might build to 80%. And so, as we get that greater confidence, not perfect confidence, but lesser distress, greater confidence, we're building our skills, we're building our coping capacity, and we're building our belief that as intensely uncomfortable as we might feel with these fight and flight survival mechanisms kicking in, we can get through that. It's uncomfortable, it's not dangerous.
0: And so then, to that degree, so say you've got someone who's maybe got something that's a 9 or a 10 on the exposure hierarchy, well, people can have phobias where they fear that thing almost worse than death in some ways. So I guess one question I have here is, why is it that even evolution-wise, for example, why is it that we haven't been able to recognise that in certain situations actually death's the bigger fear than, for example, public speaking, which many people have a great fear of? Why is it that People can fear things worse than death when there's no way they present the same amount of threat to us as death would. I think it's partly a
1: timing thing and how much we can imagine it being real in that kind of situation. So I think that when people think of a fear of death, in some ways it can seem somewhat remote, both in time and how we might imagine it. But if we think, hey, I'm due next week to deliver a speech, say, as a best man at a wedding, and say the person might feel their level of anxiety is, say, at 9 out of 10. But if it's the day before, it might be like 9.9 out of 10. As we get closer to the situation, sometimes when we can envisage it more directly, then that can evoke the fear more intensely. Whereas if we see a fear as being in a more remote kind of way, either in time or we don't imagine it as clearly, then it might have less impact on us. So that gets it. Partly our fear relates to our imagery, our thoughts and our perception of how dangerous a situation is, but often the closer we get to it in time and the more we imagine it specifically, the, the terrible things happening, then the more our fear will be. So I think a fear of death is a little bit more remote for many people.
0: And we mentioned a little bit earlier about the similarities between different types of phobias and our reactions from different stimuli in many ways, but... Are there any phobias that are, for example, different to others? The main one that's different is, say, a blood and
1: injury phobia. And because, say with agoraphobia, people might be fearful of fainting in a shopping centre. And we say, look, when you're very anxious, you're actually not likely to faint. Physiologically, it's most unlikely to happen. It's actually almost impossible. However, with a blood and injury phobia, people can faint. And the reason is... There can be a sudden drop in blood pressure. This can also happen with an injection phobia. So actually rather than telling people or guiding people to say breathe slowly, looking to relax, that actually can be at more risk of the person fainting with low blood pressure. What we instead do in that situation is suggest that the person pumps their hands because the person might have a fear of fainting in being exposed to blood. The phobia might be around the likelihood of fainting. But if the person knows that physiologically, if they pump their hands into a fist repeatedly, you know, again and again and again, that actually will keep up their blood pressure to a certain level, so they're not likely to faint. So that's the one particular phobia that we treat a little bit differently. But we still look at the self-talk and facing the situation step by step, just like the other phobias.
0: And I suppose just to finish up here, is there something in a phobia that relates to expectations in the sense that Are we more scared of something when we think that we shouldn't be scared of it? Because I remember a few years ago, there was that, they called it the creepy clown phenomenon. And like there's almost that archetype of the creepy clown, whereas obviously a clown represents kind of happiness and laughter and all this sort of stuff. Is it that in that situation, part of the thing that makes them so scary is that clowns are actually supposed to represent something completely different? Or is that just a more specific thing with clowns, whereas You know, it's been documented that a few people have subverted the idea of a clown over the years.
1: Look, I think the main thing is it comes back to the perception of a situation rather than the situation itself that is the key. And so, like you're saying, often we would think of a clown as being a positive, bright, fun kind of character, which maybe is part of the reason why movies might subvert that, as you say, and have this evil clown kind of unexpected figure. But in that example, I imagine different things might affect our perception of clowns. Look, it might even be something as benign as someone when they were young having seen a very scary movie with one of these evil clown characters. It might be the person was in a situation of feeling very panicky for a different reason when they encountered a clown figure, some of that conditioning situation. But I imagine that there's something about the creepy clown aspect that can evoke more of that anxiety in the notion of, I think people probably have a bit of an evolutionary tendency to feel some kind of potential threat from a figure that's like a human-like form but it's also kind of other or foreign in some kind of way, different from what we'd expect in a sense of being unknown, a bit unpredictable or foreign. So I suspect that's part of the reason why the evil clown archetype can work. There's something about it that's kind of familiar and kind of benign, but there's another aspect about it that can seem more unknown and disguised and sinister. Uh, I think it's maybe something along those lines.
0: Well, I suppose just to finish up, Dad, I'll just mention that one thing that I've found interesting is that probably one of the best performed kind of pieces of content that we've got at the practice is a video that you did on destination happiness on exposure and on phobias with, with Angie Hilton, the presenter. So I'd recommend everyone who's, who maybe wants to learn a little bit more about exposure or even see a little bit of it in action, feel free to head along to the YouTube channel and check out that video because that was a great example of exposure therapy in action, I think. I
1: think what Angie demonstrated in that video, which related to her fear of driving at some heights as she described, I think that's just so beneficial for other people to see that example because what Angie modelled in that is first of all accepting vulnerability, allowing the reactions to be there within her own skin and Angie describes what her reactions were like at the time, but also showing that courage, showing that courage to face the situation until her anxiety came down. And then actually afterwards, at the end, I got out of the car. We did a high five and sort of it was a time of congratulations. Well, Angie got back in the car and drove off on her own. And what a wonderful kind of way of recognising, hey, sometimes you might have a little bit more in you to take it a fraction further. And that was taking that extra opportunity of recognising, hey, maybe I can do this. And that was a good example of taking initiative pushing the limits a bit, but again, doing it in a way that Angie clearly felt some of that partial control and choice to be able to do
0: that. Well, Dad, I think that's a great place to leave it because to me, if there's any sentiment that I've got out of today, it's that people who have a phobia do display such a great deal of courage in so many ways because... If we talk about that exposure hierarchy idea, well, coming up against something that's a one or two on your exposure hierarchy still takes some level of courage. So if someone's got a phobia that's quite prominent in their life, there's going to be so many ways that they're displaying courage that, as we spoke about that stigma idea a little bit earlier, they're probably not even going to be getting credit for. So if there's one thing that's really come out of it today for me, it's just recognising the, I suppose... The plight of people with phobias and recognising how much courage they do display in facing it along the way.
1: And in doing so, again, hopefully bolstering those coping skills and resilience that can apply to different situations in other ways as well.
0: Well, Dad, as always, we'll put all the resources for today's episode up on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. And we've got the individual episode page for today. But please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But thanks for chatting with me today, Dad. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, Rowan. I've enjoyed it too.